Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. We are here on episode 250. 250. Really, really cool. Really exciting. Glad you're here. This is your first time joining us. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you have been with us through all 249 episodes prior to now, thanks for joining us again. Really do appreciate it. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review inside iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Definitely helps us out. If the show has benefited you in any way, uh, definitely stop by and do that for us. We really do appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe as well if you're not already so you don't miss out on any of these episodes. Now today, before we get to today's guest, we have a great guest, a repeat return guest. Let me remind you, we get a lot of people who say, hey, Grant, love what you're doing with the podcast, love what you're doing with the YouTube channel, which you also need to check that out, by the way, uh, thespeakerlab.com slash YouTube, I believe, or youtube.com slash thespeakerlab. Let's go to both of those, see what happens. We get people who ask, hey, how can we work with you? How can you help us find and book speaking gigs? We actually have a, a training program called the Elite Program. And so if that's something that you're interested in learning more about, about how uh, myself and our team can work with you in a one-on-one -on -one capacity about helping you build and grow your speaking business, then you definitely want to swing by and apply for a spot over at thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash apply. And uh, again, our, our hop on a call with our, one of our team members. We'd love to chat with you. Learn more about your business, what you're looking for, and how we might be able to help you out. So again, check that out over at thespeakerlab.com slash apply. All right, so today we are talking with my buddy Ron Tite, and Ron is a, a very successful speaker and entrepreneur. And uh, like I mentioned here, he's an even better human being. He was back with us uh, on episode 45, and so if you want to go way back in the archives to check that out, but he has made it back here for episode 250. We talk a lot about his process of uh, working on new material, of inserting new material, testing out new material, figuring out what works. Talks about a, a good format for not just having like one talk, but really kind of uh, bits and pieces, puzzle pieces that he can fit together and configure in different ways for uh, a presentation. So a lot to get into if you're someone who's figuring out how to put together your talk or how to use new material or why that even matters. There's a lot we get into here about why it matters for the speaker, also why it matters for event planners and what it is that they're looking for and audience members. So a lot to get to here. Let's get right into this conversation with Ron Tite. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, joined by my buddy Ron Tite, who is a uh, phenomenal speaker, very, very entertaining, and uh, all around one of the best human beings that I know. Ron, thanks for hanging out with us. How are you today, my friend? Grant, thanks for having me and for saying such kind and lovely words. Well, you know, you sent me that $20 and said, please read this script. <laughs> and I did that. So now we're even. You are on with us way back in episode 245. So it's, it's been a minute. For those who haven't heard that episode, definitely would encourage people to go back and check that out. In the meantime, can you give us a quick nutshell? Obviously, that was a couple of years ago. What does business look like today? How much are you speaking? Who are you typically speaking to? What are you speaking about? 
I'm doing about 70 keynotes a year and uh, all over, I mean, primarily all over North America, but I'll give myself kind of one or two international gigs a year mm-hmm. if I want to see a destination or something. But yeah, typically North America. And then what I sp- speak about is something called Think, Do, Say. And it's really about aligning our purpose with our actions and uh, kind of, you know, believing in something greater and then behaving in a way that reinforces that belief and then talking about it in an honest and and transparent and authentic way. And so what's really interesting is that approach, I think that is, you know, great brands are based on what they think, what they do and what they say. And great organizations are based on what they think, what they do and what they say. And great leaders are based on what they think, what they do and what they say. So when I look at who I talk to, I've done everything from 100 CEOs from the largest companies in the world uh, just a few months ago to, you know, the Coca-Cola CMO Summit that happens every year and all the way across to, you know, individual grocery store cashiers in rural markets in Western Canada. So I can make it about leadership. I can make it about, you know, marketing. I can make it about sales. Uh, or I can make it about organizational performance. So it really is that aligning purpose with actions and promotion. How have you found the balance in it? So what you just described sounds like it's a a talk and a concept that really you could make applicable and relevant to most any type of, of business or, and really probably any type of audience. And so how do you find the balance of a talk or a concept that like, I could make this for anybody and everybody. And at the same time, like you well know that if you try to market to anybody and everybody, if you just say, I, I speak to humans and I speak about everything, that, that's, that's a very, very inefficient and horrible way to get bookings as a speaker. So how do you find the balance of, yeah, this is a topic that is relevant to everybody. And yet I'm very focused on who I speak to and what I speak about and the problem that I can help them solve. Yeah. So I don't think the topic is flexible. I think the f- framework is yeah. flexible. This, the framework is really simple. You know, it's really about three words, but the speech, I don't have a speech called Think, Do, Say. I have a framework. And so the speech that I deliver to CEOs talking about leadership and organizational performance is quite different from the speech that I would give to, you know, a grocery store cashier. Yeah. The framework is very similar. But I, what I like about it is it gives me a framework for when I'm, I don't sit down and go, okay, I have a speech on Friday. Let's write this speech. Right. I'm writing the speech and various speeches every single day. So if you write a blog post that I think is really interesting and has a really interesting insight and I would go, oh, you know what? That's really cool. That fits into something that a leader can use about who they do it for. And so I take that and I slide it into a bucket called, who do you do it for? And then when I go to do a speech, I look at all the buckets and all the things that I've accumulated and researched on an ongoing basis and go, this one's relevant to this, this organization or this speech, and this is relevant and this bucket and this topic. And so I take that kind of stand up comedian mentality to it where mm-hmm. I don't have one speech. I got a whole whack of different bits. Yep. And when I sit down to look at an audience and their goals, and then I look and go, okay, I'm going to use this bit, this bit. I'm going to use the eight-minute version of that bit, the two-minute version of that bit, so that the speech itself is a customized collection of interesting things that I've been working on. 
Interesting. That makes sense. So uh, I'm curious on a couple of things here. You mentioned the framework side of it, but then also kind of the collection of stories, illustrations, ideas, data points, whatever it may be. Which has kind of come first for you? Are you uh, meaning that uh, you come across an article? Or are you thinking, wow, I know exactly where I can use that. And if it's exactly within this framework, and this is going to be perfect for this type of audience that I have coming up several months from now, or is it more of, hey, here's an interesting story or here's an interesting anecdote that I know is good. There's something there. I don't know where I'm going to use it or how I'm going to use it. So I'm just going to grab it, capture it in some way. And I'm just going to put it in my back pocket until and just kind of leave it there until maybe I, I come across it again and I don't find a better place for it. How do you kind of approach that? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, so some things are like, you know, the great scenes that end up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. There are some things that I find that I'm really interested in that are incredibly relevant to people. And so I will share those out socially and I will editorialize why I think they're important. But they don't, that doesn't mean I have to speak about them. And yeah. it doesn't mean that they need to find their way into a speech I give. Because sometimes it's just outside of my sweet spot. And I don't have the insight or the experience around that topic that I think warrants me talking about it. That doesn't mean I can't share it. Other times, you know, I, what I like about the framework is that it's so flexible. So under the do, for example, I don't just say, oh, what do you do? What are your actions? Well, I've actually got it to, well, who do you do it for? What do they want you to do? Who do you do it with? And so, you know, just a great example from last night. Who you do it with was a bucket that I talk about the importance of aligning purpose and values with partners and people who may not be outside of your organization. So there are people who may or may not be on your payroll who help you deliver the things you want to do. Right. And if it's an individual message, there are people who are on your team who help you deliver what you do or beyond your team who help you do what you want to do, right? So we should celebrate and acknowledge those partnerships. Who do you do it with? So last night, Scott Stratton, our good friend, sends me an article about how Metallica has and uh, Live Nation have taken tickets from a Metallica concert and put them immediately on StubHub so they could charge, you know, triple the fee and so the band makes more money. Yeah. And so that I was like outraged and I thought I'm going to share this and like, you know, what is this? And then I look and go, okay, is this relevant or could this be relevant in my think, do, say framework? And I slide that over. I create the slide right then. I create the slide. I grab a stock image off iStock because I have, you know, uh, all the license abilities there. I pay for it. I grab a stock photo that's right. I put the link to the article from Vox so that they get credit for their writing. Right. And then I write myself a couple of little notes. And then I slide that note, that sli I slide that slide into the who do you do it with bucket. And so now I have this extra insight that not only should we celebrate the relationships that allow us to do the things we do, but we have to protect ourselves from the people who create integrity gaps and who damage our reputation. So when our partners step outside of our purpose and values, we have to deal with that immediately. So, but that all came because there was this article I read forwarded by Scott that I really liked. And so, you know, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. So you capture it, you got it there. You even create the slide for it. One question there is, is that basically how you capture ideas currently is you just, I'm just going to create a slide. And again, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but then I've got, you know, potentially hundreds and hundreds of slides that I can go through and kind of categorizing group accordingly and pull together what my deck would be for a, any given talk. Is that how you capture it? Or do you, is any like voice memos that you use or paper pen or what's your process just for capturing something? Yeah, there are two things that I do. 
I want to say three things that I do. The first, the very first thing that I do is I, if I'm intrigued by it and I have a perspective on it, I share it out to LinkedIn and Twitter. Okay. And the reason I do that is it then forces me, I don't just go, you know, reshare or retweet. I actually editorialize it. So I write my perspective on why I'm sharing this article and what I think. That's the very first thing I do. Because then that forces me to start to put uh, things into my own words. It yeah. forces me to have an opinion on something. So I share that out. Then what I'll do is I create the slide. Again, grab a stock photo, put the credit into my notes within Keynote, and slide it into my buck. The other thing I will do, though, is I have an ongoing Scrivener file that matches my Keynote deck. And I will create a page within Scrivener where I copy and paste the notes that I've written in my social post with the link to the article. And so that it's like stage one of the next book. So I'm always writing the next book. I'm always writing the next speech opposed to sitting down for six months going, I got to crank out this book. It's this ongoing continual development, which helps me stay fresh, which helps me stay uh, current and which really pushes my thinking. So how often, whenever you capture some type of, of story or anecdote or whatever it may be, are there ever times where you're just like, man, this is so good. And I even have a place where it's going to fit. It's going to be awesome. And you try it and it just, it doesn't work. Or for whatever reason, like, man, I really, uh, I really want to use this story. The story is so good or so fun. Like I know you and I, we, we thrive on humor. We love that. And you know, like this is really, really funny. And this is really going to make a good point. And I, I yet either it doesn't work on stage or I just, I cannot find any good place to insert it. How often does that happen? And things are ultimately then ending on the, the cutting room floor. Well, I think a couple of things happen. The first thing that happens is you're exactly right where I go. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this. This is a great example. And sometimes it's a great example for five days yeah, and then it's done, right? <laughs> right, right. It's just got really, a short shelf life. Yeah, it's really timely. And for those five days, it's incredible. And then it's like, eh, it's no longer relevant. Right. For whatever reason. So sometimes that happens. Other times, it's a geographic thing yeah. where it's like, wow, this is really going to work in Canada. It is not going to work in the US because yeah. either it's a Canadian reference or it's like I can make comments about politics, about American politics in Canada that I could never make or that I wouldn't want to make south of the border. And vice versa. I can make comments about Canadian politics in the U.S. that I just, I just hesitate to make in Canada. Right. So sometimes it's a geographic thing. Sometimes I'll do it and I immediately know, what was I thinking? There's nothing there. There's, <laughs> it's, this is not a play. This, you know, whatever. Other times I'll do it and I'll think, there's something there, but I need to work it. I yep. need to, you know, using comedy terms, I need to work the bit. Yep. And then other times I'll do it and I'll think, this is a great written bit. It's not a great verbal bit. So I need the time that can come with it being an entire chapter or being just written in a really unique and interesting way that I can't deliver verbally. It just doesn't hit the same way. So some things... Uh, yeah, they just, they either, they end up in the book, but not in the speech, they end up in the speech, but not in the book, or they end up, you know, there for five days and then gone, whatever. But it's a constant experiment. Yeah, I always, I tell speakers, like, whenever you're creating a talk or working on a bit or whatever it may be, it is all an educated guess until you get in front of the audience. And then you mm-hmm. get real time live feedback. 
wow, that worked way better than I anticipated. Or I thought that was going to be amazing and I didn't get any reaction whatsoever from it. And some of you also have to kind of factor in, you know, the audience, like one thing that may kill with one audience may bomb with another audience. And some of it may be, you know, the audience itself or the time of day or where you are in the lineup relative to the entire conference or the event. There's just a lot of variables and factors that may go into whether or not something works. So I'm curious then, like looking at the overall scope of your talk, obviously there's going, like you mentioned, there's going to be a little bit of customization depending on the audience. How much of the talk would you say is is more or less the same from one presentation to another? I, I mean, there's gold bits in there, but it depends. Like, uh, I don't know, like 50%, five zero, yeah. I think. And then, but, the, but I would say that, you know, 90% of it is stuff that I've done before. Right. But there might be one bit that I only use once every 25 speeches. Yeah. But it's got a good, great shelf life and it's still relevant and stuff. So that's where that, you know, you and I talked to this notion of the new two. Yeah. Where I consciously, every single speech. So again, I'm mixing and matching. I'm like taking this bit, this bit, this bit. But at some point, I need to include at least two minutes that are brand new that have never been done before, ever, 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 that it is the first time I'm ever delivering them. And the reason for that is, well, there's a a bunch of different reasons. One is that I need, I think, for a speech to come off as authentic and as interesting, it can't approach that, wow, that feels really scripted. Yeah. So uh, that's why I'm constantly mixing and matching those bits, right? Where it's like, so, because it's the segues between the bits that allow you to show your slight imperfection. And so if it's not like, oh, it's the same thing that follows the same bit every time, that people are like, ah, that, that, yeah, there's some imperfection there. But also when I'm incorporating something that's entirely new, there's this great balance of, wow, that seemed really rough around the edges or really imperfect. It seemed like it was the first time he delivered it. But it's not like the whole speech is the first time he's delivered it. Right. Because who wants to pay for that? I mean, if right. someone's paying a, you know, a big speaking fee, they want the best speech. Yep. And so I know that if 90% of the speech is stuff that I know is fantastic, is tested, and is going to work, then I can afford to have the two minutes that completely tanks if it's not great because most of the other speeches, and they don't even notice that the two minutes was not appropriate or right. was, not, was not good enough to actually live within the speech. And I want to dig into the, the the new two here, but as I just kind of zoom out for a second here, again, you and I are both comedy fans. We follow a lot of comedians. And so, you know, uh, the approach that a lot of, uh, a lot of comedians take, and obviously it's kind of a, a different context and different format is I'm going to create a set over a period of time. And once that set has been presented in some type of, you know, Netflix, DVD, whatever special, it's gone. I'm never going to use that that material again. And I'm going to be starting over and rebuilding it from scratch. I've also heard of comedians, I think Seinfeld does this where like every so often he's replacing like 10% of his materials so to the point where whatever that cadence is that it, it's always turning over, it may take a minute to turn over. Do you find that that's that tends to be the approach that you take that I'm just going to be throwing in these two minutes every single time. And over time, enough of it's going to work that wow, over time, I, I've got I wasn't intentional necessarily, like I'm trying to create a whole new speech, or I'm trying to create a whole new talk. But if you saw this speech a year ago, and you saw the speech today, they're going to be vastly different, just because of I've gone through enough of the two minutes and enough things have worked that I've included into the talk going forward, that it's really made a difference. Is, is that basically how you're approaching it? A hundred percent. One is that, yes, over a year, it's like, oh, wow, that has a different feel to it. There's new stuff in there. 
that also makes me feel fresh, you know, that I'm delivering. I'm always kind of delivering new stuff, exploring new stuff. So the new two can either take uh, an existing bit and make it completely better or an existing insight or an existing point and make it better with a refreshed example where it's like, oh, this is better or more timely or more current than the thing that's already in there. So that thing's going to get thrown out and it's going to be replaced by this new two, which I've now seen has worked. The other thing that it can do is the two doesn't have to stay a two. So it starts as a two, but the two may become a 10. Yeah. Because you go, wow, not only does that two minutes work, I want to explore that two even more. So I'll give you a great example of this. I was doing a speech, this is a couple of years ago. I was doing a speech. And I don't know if you've seen me, but I will occasionally use the line, the, the, the name of the song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Okay. And I just, as part of the, the new two, I thought, oh, no, sorry. I was doing something where I looked at disruption. And I looked at disruption, and I, on stage one day, said something like, Netflix taking over Blockbuster wasn't disruption. It was a coup of the entertainment space. And I just said that. And so I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's like disruption is a coup. And so I thought, what are some songs that are like anti-establishment songs? And so for the next two, for the next speech, I thought, I'm just going to explore that. What are some songs? So I just did this and I had the top 10 list of anti-establishment songs of like, if there was a theme song for what this all would be, here are the top 10 songs that we might play. Within there... I had one of them was the revolution will not be televised. And then that became this whole, not only became a whole eight minute section of the speech now of this fact that in business, the revolution will not be televised, but it helped create an entire podcast that we just sold to a big media company called the coup. Wow. And looking at business disruption through the lens of political coup d'etats and the establishment falling. And so that one little Google search on, huh, let's check out some anti-establishment songs. I just want to try this out as a new two, became this whole other vehicle and this whole other platform to discuss business disruption that can now be an eight-minute speech, can be an entire 10 episode podcast can be a speech all on its own. So that I would not have explored that whole new topic if I wouldn't have forced myself to do the new two in the first place. So like in that example, you say something on stage that may just be at the moment, just like a little throwaway line. And then you know, it kind of sinks in or resonates with you. Click, something catches your attention with it. You try to incorporate that fairly soon thereafter. Is that typically what the the timeline looks like? Meaning, for example, you you referenced earlier, Scott, this Metallica article. Someone sends you an article yesterday. You're like, dang, that's really good. I create the slide for it. How soon will that actually see the light of day? How soon will that make it into a, a new two? Is that something like, hey, within the next you know the next week or two, or is it? It could be you know six months because I got a whole bunch of other ideas that are in the queue, or is it really just kind of depend on the talk or the audience or what the the bit may be. Yeah, it really does depend, but oh, I try and get in as soon as possible. So yeah. like, if it's like the next, I have a speech the next day, like I'm going to do it right then when it's fresh in my brain. Um, it's also because it's, it's typically been something I've read, so it's, it's rather timely. And, you know, like 
the day after the Colin Kaepernick ad ran, right? I used it right away. Yep. And I kind of knew from my gut what I thought about it. But what ended up happening was I used it the next day and I used it in San Francisco. And given the, the political environment within San Francisco, it got like applause, like wow. the crowd applause, uh, applauded or applauded, which is a new, <laughs> is a new <laughs> past tense of applause. Um, so they applauded. A couple of days later, I used it in Dallas. It's a different political environment. Yeah. And, and it did not get the same response. But yeah. what it forced me to do was react to that and to say, look, like, I'm not a football fan, nor am I a political scientist, nor am I American. So I can't even comment on the bigger picture of what this means in, in your environment. But as a brand guy, I'm telling you that if you're Nike and you say you supposedly stand up for athletes, you're morally obligated to run this ad. You know, by using it so quickly in a different audience, it forced me to say something that I should have said all along, but it wasn't until I got that, that difference audience reaction, which forced me to think about it on another level. Right. And now is, that's something that I would say every time when I use it. Other times that I'll see something and I'll think, this is perfect for somebody that works in a financial institution but maybe not as relevant for other people. So the next time I speak to a financial institution, I'm going to use this, but I won't use it up until then. So it seems like this type of format of one, kind of having the puzzle pieces that you mix and match in different orders, and then also inserting a, you know, a fresh puzzle piece, so to speak, that new two every talk. To me, it seems like it does two things. One is like you said, it, it really keeps you on your toes versus, you know, there's plenty of speakers that we both know who do the exact same talk every single time, and the talk is phenomenal and they can stand on stage and kill it, but they can also just be going through the motions and be completely robotic and just be dying inside because they're just bored. Like I know this punchline works. I know how to deliver yeah. this and I'm just going through the motions and it all works. It's all fine. But as the speaker standpoint, like it's completely boring versus if you said, okay, I've got these 10 different bits and I'm going to do them in a different order than I've ever done them. Like it forces you to be prepared and it forces you to be on your game and it forces you to like to be ready versus just kind of phoning it in. So it feels like from that standpoint, it keeps you sharp from a speaker standpoint and keeps you engaged with the audience versus just going through the motions. The second thing I'm assuming is it helps from a marketing standpoint of clients are oftentimes hesitant to book a speaker if they've already had that speaker. I, we don't want the same talk that we had a year ago. We want, the different, we want some different speakers. We want the audience to turn over a little bit. So we're happy to have you back, but it may be you know, two, three, four, five years before we bring you back. And so if you're able to say, hey, I'm going to have a totally different speech by next year, or they've seen you before and then they see you again and like, it was all new material for the most part. That, like, that stuff resonates with event planners that they want to potentially bring you back. So do you find that those two things have been beneficial? Like it keeps it interesting and engaging for you, but then it also helps you with event planners for repeat business? Yeah, I'll deal with the, the second point first. You know, I did a, a speech for a group of like, I think it was about 100 general managers, right? Like regional general managers of a very large grocery chain. And, and then two weeks later or three weeks later, I addressed probably 800 people of which the hundred were in the room. And I, I was like, I can't give those hundred people the same speech. Yeah. Like, I don't care if there's 700 other people, I'm not doing it. 
because yeah. I don't want to have hundred people sitting back and kind of going, yeah, yeah, we heard this last time. So I did a whole new thing. And I think one of the greatest compliments that I've ever received was one of those hundred general managers came up to me and said, I just saw you three weeks ago and this was all new. And this was fantastic too. How the hell do you do that? How do you do that? <laughs> you know, and that's because there are, I've been writing the speech all along. Like I don't sit down and go, oh no, now I need to come up with another speech. It's right. always in development. There's always new stuff waiting in the background that I can plug in and customize for a different audience. So, and that are, and that are all great examples that have all been kind of tested as a new too. Right. So I'm just building that archive of stuff. So that I think is, yeah, they will bring you back the next year. Something else which helps with that is if I say my speech is called Think, Do, Say, and they go, what's your speech you're going to deliver now? If they think I've only got that one speech, then they're going to be really hesitant. Opposed to saying, look, I have one framework, but let's talk about your goals and objectives here and let's see what I can do. I'll customize the title of the speech because it is based on different inputs for that organization. And so if I say, look, last year I did, and they tell two friends because it was all of you wanted a speech on the power of story. And, but now you want the, the power of data and you know, then I can deliver a different speech with a different title with different inputs from the same framework. That's really popular for event planners. Yeah. They really, really like that because it's, fresh material with a proven commodity because every time they choose a speaker, they're putting their jobs on the line by going, is this person going to embarrass me? Are they going to, you know, say some, some curse word that I'm going to get fired for. And so if they've had you before and they're comfortable with you, they would love to bring you back. The second part you said about the, yeah, like keeping it fresh where it's not scripted is really, really important to me that I want you know, we should always have that little bit of fear, right? That little bit of, I don't know how this is going to go, that keeps <laughs> us on our toes yep. and that makes us fully take in, you know, we need to be able to read the room. Yeah. And if we go, oh, that, you know, oh, they didn't react to the Colin Kaepernick ad. I better do something right now. Well, what do I say? What do I say? Then that makes it lively for us as speakers. And yeah. interesting a point on that. I think you've heard, me tell the story about my lost luggage on Air Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, I have so heard it. It got to a point where this was a signature bit. Yep. It was the bit that was really funny. It was really, you know, it was tight. Everything was about it was great. And someone came up to me and said, oh, you're the Air Canada guy. And I went, mm, that's not <laughs> how I want to be known. Yeah. So I'm going to drop the bit. I'm going to retire the bit. Yeah. And which is so rare, like people don't walk away from gold bits like that. I was like, nope, I got better. I got, I have other great stuff. I'm not doing this anymore. So I made this conscious decision. I'm no longer telling the Air Canada bit. And I went to Porto in Portugal to deliver a speech. uh, And they had this professional host and the host had clearly done some research and watched some videos And so the first time that I've decided to not start off the speech with the Air Canada story, the host says, a bunch of background and says, and wait till you hear his story about his lost luggage. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll start that the next time out. 
<laughs> That's amazing. That's so good. So, and then that just reminds me of like, when you speak, again, like we were talking about, it all is an educated guess, but when something works, you want to keep using it. You want to keep going somewhere with that, but at the same time, like not becoming pigeonhole. Like it, it, again, it kind of reminds me of the difference between like musicians and comedians. Like for, I went to see the comedian Brian Regan several years ago and he would do, yeah. he would do his whole set. And then he took almost like audience requests at the end. And it was well done, but he kind of like, we, we want you to do such and such joke or such and such joke and the jokes that people get. But it's like, it's not as effective. Like I've seen it. I know what the punchline is versus like when you go to a concert, like, no, no, I want you to do all your greatest hits. I want the songs that I can sing along to. And it's just a, it's a different vibe there. And so that it's, it's almost similar with, uh, with speakers that you can't go and just do the thing that everyone knows if they just know the punchline because it, it loses some of the power to it. It loses some of the, the value to it. Uh, so if you find yeah, it... Yeah, totally. Out, yeah, it's, it's so difficult to walk away from though. Yeah, it's rare that... Yeah, it's rare that, you know, people go to a, to a comedy show and yell out, do the Barbie bit! You know, like it just <laughs> doesn't, doesn't really work. But... What's interesting is for a speaker and for comedians, I've seen comedians who will do Q&A. Yeah. And, and obviously speakers do Q&A. Here's what's interesting about the Second City. So I was in the corporate roster for Second City for, I don't know, not on the main stage, but in their corporate roster. But I've I lived within that Second City world for yeah. a long time and still collaborate with a bunch of Second City alumni and stuff. But what people don't realize, if you go to see a live Second City show, you, it's a sketch show. So it's a sketch show and they do the same show for like three months, but on Friday nights and Saturday nights at 10 o'clock, you can get a access to a, um, you can stick around for a free improv show. Yeah. And so they will improvise. And of course with an improv, there's a certain scenario and then they go out and they go, give us an occupation, you know, and you're like gynecologist, whatever. <laughs> and what people don't realize is what they're doing is they're writing the next show. Yeah. So they're taking some sketch ideas that they have and they're messing with those core ideas by asking you to force them into a place that they wouldn't naturally go to. And so you're forcing them to go into a place they wouldn't think of and that creates the potential for great comedy. Right. And then they're like, oh, that line worked really, really well. Let's go back and add that to the script for the next show and they keep testing it keep testing it keep testing it what we as speakers can do in q a is the exact same thing if we get asked questions that may force us into a place or have it apply our thinking to an occupation or to a company or to an industry that we would have never even thought of before and it forces us to act on our feet to improvise what our answer would be so we can take that and go away and go oh there's something in that answer that is a new to Right. Or I've added 30 seconds to my existing dialogue to take care of all the middle managers in the room. You know, like, so Q&A can be really, really effective at, at doing that. How often are you finding that you're able to, like, you just say something in the moment, off the cuff, truly spontaneous, and you're like, oh, dang, that really worked well. I need to incorporate that in next time and the time after that. How often is that happening versus stuff that, that's been scripted ahead of time? It happens a lot. I mean, I know some people are probably really detailed about it and they will take their shows and record their shows, their speeches, and then go back. And like, for me, it's just like, I know it when I know it. Yeah. When it strikes me as like, hmm, that's an interesting thought. That for me is the test. Is that if I remember it afterwards and it drives me to be a little bit more curious about it, 
I know there's something there. If I said something in the moment and I just, I don't even think about it afterwards, then it probably wasn't good. Cool. I love it. Ron, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. The book, Think, Do, Say, How to Seize Attention, Build Trust in a Busy, Busy World will be out in October. So I'd encourage everyone to pick it up. Uh, why should a speaker read this book? A speaker should read this book because a, um, you can apply this thinking to yourself as a speaker. And I'll quickly give you the, the, the quick take on it. What a speaker believes, and this is at the heart of all your speeches, you fundamentally have to believe something. Right. And so, for example, for me, what do I fundamentally believe about people and about organizations? I fundamentally believe that people used to vote with their wallets and now they vote with their time. And that winning the battle for time is the most important part of every single one of our jobs. That's what I fundamentally believe. So what do you fundamentally believe? What is the core foundation to all of your speeches, regardless of what the title is and what the buckets and the bits are? What do you fundamentally believe? The second part is, how do you behave as a speaker in your business that reinforces that? So if I believe that people should be authentic, yet when people interact with me as a speaker, I'm not very authentic, that creates what some things we call an integrity gap. So we have to align the purpose of what we believe, how we put that into place and how we run our speaking business. And then the third part is, how do we talk about this in a really interesting and compelling way? Because if we believe in something better, and greater, and we behave in a way that reinforces that belief, that's worth talking about. As a speaker, it's worth promoting yourself, but we have to promote it and talk about it in a way that's interesting, and that's relevant, and that's timely, and that's honest, and that's authentic. And that, when you combine all those three things for a speaker, that is somebody I want to hire, and that is somebody that I want to bring back year after year, and that's a great speaker business. Well done. Think, do, say. Go pick it up at bookstores everywhere. Check out rontight.com. Also one of the best uh, speaking websites out there. Really clean, well done, simple. Definitely one to, to check out. So Ron, thanks for the time, man. We really appreciate you. Grant, thank you. And listeners, thank you for your time. <laughs> All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ron Tite. Again, don't forget to check out his new book coming out in October, Think to Say. Go pick it up at bookstores. Make sure you check out his website, rontite.com. Like I mentioned before at the beginning, if you are interested in learning more about how we can work with you and helping you build and grow your speaking business, then you definitely want to swing by and check out thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Book a call there, apply for a call. And we would love to have a conversation with you and uh, see how we can work together and help you build and grow your speaking business, all right? Thanks for hanging out with us for all 250 episodes. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.